Today I'm with Dara McDonald. Dara is a Sydney-based lawyer who runs a private members club for free speech. It's called All Minus One. She also writes for various publications, including Quillette, and has her own Substack. She's also a member or a director of the newly formed Free Speech Union in Australia. Uh, the Free Speech Union originates from the UK and was founded by uh, former Quillette editor Toby Young. So Dara, why does Australia need its own free speech union? Well, because not everyone, uh, and this is something that is often brought up by critics of cancel culture or the concept of cancel culture. They say it's a it's a battle between elites. Um, you look at J.K. Rowling, all these people that have been quote unquote cancelled or mobbed, they have the ability to fight it. They have resources. No one's being harmed. But this is to miss the, the fact that ordinary people are also caught up in these battles. Um, and when you have a free speech union, you have someone that can support these people that are ordinary people with ordinary jobs that have been mobbed online or subject to workplace disciplinary actions for very innocuous speech, really. So do we have any recent examples of of that in Australia that you can talk about? We've only just started in Australia, so we don't, haven't gotten the the volume of cases that you would have in, say, the UK and in New Zealand also has a free mm-hmm. speech union. And when you have a free speech union, you do see these cases. For instance, there was one in New Zealand where there was a mortician um, who was subject to workplace disciplinary action because she misgendered a cadaver, so a dead body. Mm-hmm. Arguably no one is offended because the person is, is dead and clearly if you only see someone on your table and you assume that they look like a man, you would yeah, say this is one of those like kind of crazy examples but things that happen in real life. These aren't people that are being political or, you know, being um, intentionally provocative. These are just people that are, you know, overstepping the mark of what is polite to say in a- to say in our society and the taboos that we've we've decided are the thing. Um, even though we've just started, we have a few cases, some of which I'm not allowed to talk about at the moment because they're subject to legal action. But by the most part, there's a lot of cases of civil servants, mm-hmm. university professors, these sorts of people. But there's also cases um, which have come to our attention, one which I can talk about is one involving a 10-year-old autistic girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard a bit about this one. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, it's really, honestly, I find it quite cruel that people that um, exclaim that words are violence but yet are willing to uh, go down the road of, and, and this this case involves this 10-year-old autistic girl that was suspended from a school for basically questioning why there is someone with boy parts, quote-unquote, in the female toilets. Now, this is something that is a live debate in our society at the moment. This is something that adults can't really work mm-hmm. out. We're currently fighting it out where the, the you know where trans rights start and where female rights and to fe- to female spaces um, begin. Mm-hmm. And so, we're currently fighting about this in a society, and we expect ten year olds, let alone ten year old autistic children, which you know clearly with and do- do- diagnosis of autism. This is someone that is going to struggle with negotiating social situations, some social situations that we're already struggling with as adults, and we're expecting them to be able to negotiate that situation without offending anyone. It's completely unreasonable, to be honest, and quite cruel, I would say. And, you know, we have brought this to the attention of um, the Department of Education and the school that is 
possibly even amounting to unlawful discrimination on the basis of disability, because obviously this is someone who is very vulnerable and has different needs in terms of understanding social situations. So how will the free speech union work here? Um, People like the aggrieved parties, for example, the the parent of this child comes to you and asks for your support. And what, what sort of support can you provide them? Um, so this, the one one with the, the case against the school, this is something that we've taken on without being approached by the parents because we think it's a completely um, cruel situation. We don't want to see, um, you know, children expelled or suspended from school and deprived of an education because they can't navigate a social situation that we as adults are struggling to negotiate. So that's something we have taken on. Public interest. Pub- on public yeah. interest yeah. grounds. So we do have that function that if we see something that is completely ridiculous and you know completely cruel, we will jump in and defend. But for the most part, we work as a union. So people come, they join up as a member. Um, there's some fees on our website, freespeechunion.au. And uh, if you get in trouble, at the moment we're a very skeletal organisation, so the support that we can offer is very bare bones but as we build up resources and members we hopefully will be able to function as a completely fully fledged union where we can come in and defend our members if they're subject to workplace disciplinary action or some other uh, adverse action based on something they say. I can see on your website one of the core value is reclaim larrikinism (laughs) which I like. So we wanted this I mean we have free speech unions in other parts of the world obviously the original one is in UK but because this is the free speech union of Australia we wanted it to have a particular Australian flavour and um, reclaim larrikinism is one of those things that is not just free speech because it's useful, it's not just free speech because it's um, part of a functioning democracy, which is, is all very, you know, that's all very true, but free speech because it's also fun. Like we don't want to walk around in a society where we always have to walk on eggshells and worry if we're defend- offending people. We can, you know, throw out comments out there and, and okay, people will be offended, but that's part of the Australian spirit is that we we are very straightforward with our speech. We are very, um, we can be very cutting at times. And I think we need to be able to still have that flavour of our culture. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like that one. Yeah. Um, so how did you come to be a director of the Free Speech Union? Did someone approach you or did you? I approached Toby quite a few years ago, to be honest. Um, I start, I started the process back in... 2001, I think. Wow. Of talking ago. to him, uh, or maybe early 2002. And then I sort of, uh, it's, nothing really happened because I didn't have other people that were interested in starting in Australia. And then my co director, Ruben, Ruben, which is a Monash Uni professor, came on board. Um, and a few other people galvanized again around. Um, having a free speech union in Australia. And from that, really, with the support and the skills that they came on board with, that, that was, it was really what made it possible to start it in Australia. Mm. We're still all, all, we still all have our day jobs. We are not yeah. being paid for this. We're kind of doing it as a, a public service at the moment. Mm. Um, so yeah. I know you're a lawyer. Do you work in the free speech? No. no. <laughs> no. Would you like to? Uh, I mean, yeah, sure. But um, it's not really a viable it's not like a not like America where you have a First Amendment and there's there's a lot of litigation that happens in that space. Um, look, I, I mean, I'm also happy to divorce my day job from my hobby in some respect. Like I, I work as a you know a commercial lawyer, but um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's also nice to have a little bit of a separation and do something different outside. So I, and, it's, either or is fine. Yeah. And how long have you been interested in free speech for? Long time. <laughs> um, it's one of those those things uh, or those values that have changed, not changed throughout my life, basically. So I grew up in what is, you know, the hippie, hippie world of Australia. Mm-hmm. I grew up near Nimbin mm-hmm. um, in Byron Bay in that sort of northern New South Wales area. I went to a a neo-humanist school. Wow. So I had a very hippie kind of education where we meditated and sung every day and had a whole term off to do a school play. Um, So I had a very kind of this this sort of old left upbringing. So I've been, I was part of this kind of subculture where free speech was very much valued, but also other sort of left-wing ideas like, you know, environmental protection and these sorts of things were very much part of my childhood. When I moved away and went to university, I was quite shocked, to be honest, because um, when I got there, despite, you know, the you know, universities being very left wing, they were not the sort of left wing that I was used to coming from this kind of hippie upbringing. Um, and one of the real flashpoints for me was actually a free speech case that, that happened when I was studying law. It was this the infamous um, Section 18C case with Andrew Bolt. Um, so this was one of the real like flashpoints for Australia and free speech. And I was um, studying down the road from the courts. So I was w- wandering up in my lunch break and having a look at the proceedings. Um, and the, what was really interesting is that I came down on the issues in question very differently to what a lot of the people that I was studying with. Can, can you outline the basic facts of that case for people who aren't familiar? And- this is to do with a piece of legislation we have in Australia mm-hmm. called the Racial Discrimination Act. And Section 18C of it says that it's unlawful to offend, harass, and humiliate someone on the basis of race. The key point of that is offend because that's a very low bar. Mm-hmm. It's a very low bar to offend someone. Um, and this particular uh, commentator who is very famous in Australia, Andrew Bolt, had written these Known pieces. Known as one of our – he's like the Pierce Morgan of yeah. Australia, so Tucker Carlson. Yeah, so much. well-established commentator on the right. Mm-hmm. And he had written these pieces about people who could, shall we say, pass as non-Indigenous or have claimed Indigenous ancestry um, in order to benefit from all the things that Australia's Australia does as a country to try and, you know, uplift the Indigenous community in Australia, which is um, obviously a big issue now with the voice vote and everything. But um, so this this had been uh, published, a few pieces, and um, a group of Indigenous um, or aggrieved people that had been name-called in his article had taken this case against him. Interestingly enough, some of them have come out and said they've regretted taking this action. For instance, Bindi Cole, the artist, which was named, she's come, come and basically uh, full, come full circle and has has now decided that the Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act is not a good really? thing and has made good with Andrew Bolt on live on air and everything. So it's interesting that some of the people that were part of this um, this court case and now on good terms yeah. with Andrew Ball. Yeah. So the issue in question was whether these pieces were able to be published and whether they would infringe Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, which the Federal Court of Australia decided it did. So, um, yes, so that was, that was a, a big flashpoint because that means that um, saying what Andrew Bolt said in these pieces is now, you know, unlawful. 
So how did your interpretation of that uh, differ from your... Well, your I, I, I basically said that we shouldn't have a provision that made it unlawful to offend someone. I think that's completely ludicrous. <laughs> I'm, you know, I've always been, have always, I've always been very pro-free speech, or, you know, pretty much an absolutist. And my uh, fellow students at university had def- definitely didn't have that view and, and thought that the, first of all, the decision against Andrew Bolt was correct and also, um, also that, you know, making it illegal to offend someone on the basis of race, amongst other characteristics, is completely legitimate. Since then, have there been other high-profile uh, legal cases using Section 18C? Yeah, there have. There has been one, uh, particularly the QUT case, uh, which was involved some students um, who were in a apparently si- non-signposted but uh, should have been clear that it was an Indigenous-only computer lab. Oh, okay. Um, and they posted at Queensland and Queensland University. University of Technology, and they were kicked out of it. And they posted, um, they posted on the channel within the university, or maybe it was Facebook. I can't remember that they had just been kicked out of an indigenous computer lab. Mm. Um, and from that, the professor in question that had kicked them out of it took issue with it, and um, started a, a complaint process with the Australian Human Rights Commission against them under Section 18 of the Racial Discrimination Act. Many of the students settled. A few of them took it further and took it to the federal court. Um, And in that case, actually, it was um, thrown out. They were uh, were acquitted. Um, And so that that is also uh, interesting in the sense that the Australian Human Rights Commission, if it had been dealt with in that, would have considered this to be uh, problematic and and um, the complainant in this case was awarded damages from them, but when it went to court, it was thrown out, which is interesting as mm-hmm. well. So most of our readers and listeners are not based in yeah. Australia. What do you think they need to know about uh, free speech in Australia? What are the main differences when it comes to other countries like the United States or England? Well, the key po- point between Australia and US, for instance, is that there's no such thing as um, a right to free speech in Australia. We do have what is this is this is very like wonky <laughs> uh, constitutional law, but there have been a few cases in in Australia that have decided that there is an implied right of political communication or implied freedom of political communication. There's no wording to that effect in the constitution. It's just our judges, when they've looked at the constitution, they've decided that it was clearly democratic and therefore there has to be some ability to speak freely on political matters. Um, so that that is one uh, protection, if you want, but it's, it's based on this very kind of in the vibe of the thing interpretation of our constitution and therefore it's very likely that you know it could be taken away or read down or mm-hmm. rescinded by future justices so yeah there there is a little bit of a implied freedom in our constitution but otherwise we don't have uh, a constitutional protection for free speech using a, a recent example so mm-hmm. on monday uh a crowd of hundreds of people um mm-hmm. joined a pro-Palestinian march in Sydney. Um, They marched from Town Hall to the Opera House. Mm. And um, I'm sure many people will have seen that uh, at the Opera House they were shouting Mm. things that 
uh, are quite abhorrent about Jewish yeah. people, um, even inciting, you know, um, gas the Jews, you know, uh, mm-hmm. asking that Jewish people be killed. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on that when it comes to freedom of speech? Um, should that be allowed to happen in your in your eyes? What are your thoughts on that? I my my view personally is that actually free speech is necessary in this circumstance as well. To be honest, I'm very happy that we know who these people are, that they felt free enough to shout the horrid things that they did on mm-hmm. the, the steps of know. the yeah. Opera House. I prefer to know that they hold those views rather than that they be underground holding those views. So in that respect, I'm actually very happy we live in a free society where they felt free enough to be able to engage in that behaviour. Um, interestingly enough, one of my uh, – one of the – little bits of research that I did is I compared countries that have very strict and for good reason, historically very strict, you know, particularly in in Germany and and countries where they've completely banned the swastika, they're not allowed to say any, uh, have very harsh penalties for any kind of anti-Semitic speech. And when I looked at the data, most of the anti-Semitic incidents that happened happened in those countries. which is not necessarily a causal effect mm-hmm. in the sense that I'm sure, to put bluntly, a lot of those incidents are more driven by the immigration policies of those countries rather than whether they have this law on the books or not. But the interesting thing is that the law didn't help in that instance. Mm-hmm. So in terms of actually violent behaviour, it seems that having hate speech laws, quote-unquote, on the books doesn't actually result in there being a, di- a diminution a diminution of of actual violent incidences mm-hmm. or, or hate crimes, if you mm-hmm. want to say. So when you say that you're a free speech absolutist or almost an absolutist, yeah, um, yeah. What's what's your where's where do where I draw, do you the, draw line? the line? Yeah, I mean, I, I think very very much in line with what the do you know the the decisions around the First Amendment are in the U.S. So, for instance, direct incitements of violence. Obviously, don't. That's off the table. Um, anything you know, anything that directly causes harm to someone. None of this sort of, uh, you know, fuzzy. It could, you know, it, it, it merely offends, or um, it's even even really uh, serious incitements. I, I would say the instance with the the incidents on the steps of the opera house. None of those people had the ability to carry out that right there, right now. Therefore, um, that wouldn't. I wouldn't say that that's an incitement in, in the direct sense that, that they directly um, directly were able to carry out that um, that at that point, but that is still it is still obviously uh, you know it is it is still very awful yeah, <laughs> awful yeah. language. It's still mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so so, so yeah. the the difference would be if they were saying you know kill Jews and they had. Weapons there because still, I mean, you can kill someone without a weapon. Yeah, you know. Um, I mean, this is the the kind of the classic example given in John Stuart Mill on liberty of the the um, you know, there's a guy that's standing out the front of a, a corn you know you know corn farmer's house and saying and saying all these things about you know corn farmers mm-hmm. or I can't remember the example well, exactly but because there's the mob outside the house at that point mm-hmm. that would definitely be considered an assignment to violence because they're, clearly they're about to go mob the guy you know mm-hmm. um, so I think I think context 
where where the speech happens is also key okay. in that sense. Like if, you know, people posting, you know, I want to, you know, I'm, I've had a few of those, like I want to rape you kind of thing on Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, like you, you get all those kind of, you know, comments that you get um, from abhorrent people on Twitter, but they have no ability to carry that out. They they don't know who I am. They're a million miles away. They're some fox, you know, or, <laughs> you know, anonymous account. Yeah. Um, so anime in that insta- character. Anime, anime fox character usually. Or, yeah, yeah. So they have no ability to, to carry that threat out necessarily. So I wouldn't consider that an assignment to violence in the sense that context matters, you know. Okay, so what about the the case of um, J.K. Rowling in in mm. the UK? Because it seems in that case that it started online, it started on Twitter, mm. and then people actually rocked up to her house. If if I understand correctly, yeah. Um, was the Free Speech Union in the UK involved in that? I, case? I'm actually unsure. I think uh, with J.K. Rowling, she's big enough that she's been able to handle this matter on her own. Right. I assume we offered, but I'm not sure. Um, so in that instance, I this is a this is a direct action. I would say that you know it's, not, it's one thing to say something; it's another thing to rock up at the house and you know be intimidating. Yes, and I, I guess this is this is where really the the line is drawn. Is the defa- speech is one thing; is 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 actions that are the other. And in our society, I would say strongly suggest that it's actions that should be punished. It's the, the people that rock up to someone's house, you know, camp outside, clearly trying to intimidate them, truly clearly trying to harass them. That should be where we enforce the law rather than merely saying X, Y, Z. Okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully the people um, on the Opera House steps on Monday don't take it any further um, although we did see yesterday, I believe, that a construction worker in Bellevue Hill was harassing yeah. some young guys who had an yeah. Israeli flag. Yeah, I did see car. that case and mm-hmm. they've been arrested and that's good and charged. Great. Uh, well, no, not charged, but um, what's interesting, I did hear that the bail conditions that were set for this particular guy who mm-hmm. harassed these um, teenagers that had the Israeli flag was that he's not allowed to go into a neighborhood where there's Jews. Yeah. Which is very I haven't I haven't heard of any such bail conditions being set ever before. So yeah. that's very, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, it was I noticed that too and it's it's interesting because I've just moved into an area that's um one well the most densely mm. um populated areas with Jewish people mm. um in the eastern suburbs. And yeah, I think for people um, familiar with the Jewish community, whether they love it or hate it, um, they know about they know that there are lots of Jews who live there. Yeah. So I guess it does make sense. There are lots of synagogues around there. Yeah. What do you think about this? Is related, but a bit of a tangent, I suppose. Um, the the issue of um, people moving here, or you know, often it's people like third or second generation um, children of of migrants to Australia who don't ascribe to our values of free speech um, or of, um, you know, freedom of religion or what is, do you think there's anything to be, to be done? Do you think we should be discussing when it comes to that? A few things. First is that I think in Australia, we've done a very poor job of 
articulating and defending our values mm -hmm. in the sense that we've had this policy where we feel like just because someone's part of our, you know, have joined our society that they're going to share our values. To use um, to use Douglas Murray's phrase, if they touch the, the touch the feet on the the soil of Europe and suddenly have the ideas of Voltaire, that's just completely irrational. Um, so I I think we've done a very very poor job in being strong in our own culture and our own values and really articulating that and. That's also the case with a lot of, um, I guess, these woke ideas is that it really degrades our ability to be um, very strong in our our values and our, our defense of free speech. And so I think that's one side of the coin is that in Australia, we don't do enough to articulate and educate incoming migrants and also the younger generations as well, particularly in school and so on, that they, they don't understand why free speech is necessary. They don't understand why any of this is necessary. So I think that's one part of it is that we're not doing enough in our culture to educate newcomers, be it by birth or by migration. I guess the other part of that is that we need to recognise that there's extreme differences of different cultures where people can come from and in this regard it doesn't help being politically correct and also doesn't help having our free speech rights quashed in the sense that we do need to articulate that there's very different cultures um, around free speech rights of women etc and we can't assume that people coming here are going to necessarily think that our values are superior particularly if we haven't articulated them like I said before so I I think we need, really need to have a very honest conversation about who's coming to this country, what values are they coming with, is that something, is, is, it, is there some obligation that we should um, put on them to actually acquire our values where you can eat, you know, multiculturalism, you can eat your own food, you can do your own celebrations, but in terms of the values that we really, that's really something that we should be insisting on in our culture, I would say. Yeah. I tend to agree. Yeah. Uh, and my opinion on that has changed since, um, yeah, the the attack on Israel and the the reaction here. It was something like I have a lot of friends who are interested in um, immigration and um, multi and critiquing multiculturalism. And to be honest, I thought uh, I thought they were overblowing it. I thought perhaps. Um, they had, you know, there was some racist motives and, um, you know, I'm the granddaughter of Greek migrants and I was a bit sensitive to that, to be honest. Yeah. I, I still hung on to the idea that multiculturalism was amazing and yeah. faultless. Um, and from, yeah, I, I guess I've been red-pilled on yeah. the issue. And I, I was red-pilled uh, some years ago, as I was saying, I had this very left-wing upbringing mm -hmm. and then I moved to Europe in 2014 mm -hmm. um, and that was there 2015-16. So that was when the, the full-blown migrant crisis mm -hmm. was happening in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I usually use the example that I moved over to Europe reading The Guardian and came back reading The Spectator because right. my views completely wow. changed. What country did you move to? I was in the UK mostly, yeah. but I was going back and forward between different 
um, different countries in in Europe. Um, I spent a lot of time in Germany as well during that time, so where really where the bulk of the migrants were coming from. And I have my my stepdad's um, German, so I went and stayed with some of his family, and right. they were really experiencing in a small town in yeah. Germany how many migrants were coming in, what their experience was, and, and all this sort yeah. of stuff. So I have heard that about Germany. Uh, and that it's really affecting some of the smaller towns. I know that Germans have quite a culture of saunas and spas and yeah. like a lot of Northern yeah. Europeans, I suppose. Yeah, I, that, that was a very interesting um, cultural cultural <laughs> moment for me because the, like, the first day I arrived in Europe, I, you know, was staying with this guy and he was like, oh, do you want to go to the sauna? I'm like, I just got after, you know, an extremely long flight and that sounded amazing. Yeah. And then just as we're walking in, he's like, oh, you do realise it's naked, like men and women <laughs> in together naked. I'm like, oh, no, I didn't, but that's okay. I'm not a prude. <laughs> yeah. So Germans, Germans yeah. seem to be yeah. quite, that's a normal thing for them. And um, from from what I've heard um, now with, with more migrants from other countries where it's, you know, well, let's not beat around a bush. Like a lot of the time women are veiled, let alone... Let yeah. alone completely naked yeah. in front of other men. Yeah. yeah, and it's having quite effect, quite an effect on um, yeah, on the women there and men. And mm. yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. And I've also been thinking a lot about, we talk about protecting certain cultures, like indigenous cultures, yeah. or I think, you know, a lot of Australians would support, you know, the right for Japanese people to have their culture or Chinese people. But when it comes to like white cultures, gets a bit more people are more reticent to talk about it. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, there are so many different um you know, Anglo-Saxon cultures. There's different, like, different European cultures. Exactly. Everyone that, you know, this idea that Europe is completely homogenous or, mm-hmm. you know, even the UK is completely yeah. homogenous. Basically, particularly if you're in Australia, you've mm-hmm. not necessarily come here mm-hmm. because your ancestors had it hunk- hunky-dory where mm-hmm. they came from. Mm-hmm. So I really do object to labelling different groups as mm-hmm. one more oppressed than the other particularly if you go back through history. I mean, there's definitely things that have happened in more recent history, but at some point everyone has been the oppressor and the oppressed and there's all, there's all, it all comes out of the wash when you, you know, take a longer time frame with yeah. all these things. So you, you wrote an article for Quillette in July of this year um, called The Great Misinformation Panic and it's about a new draft law. Mm-hmm. Um, could could you tell us a bit about that misinformation act? Well, what's interesting is that um, – well, we, can, we can get to the interesting part, but mm-hmm. I'll, I'll explain what it is first. So Australia has proposed this draft legislation that intends to regulate misinformation and disinformation online. The mechanism by which they're going to do this is that ACMA, which is our main regulating body, it's a bit like, you know, Ofcom and all these other equivalents in other countries, um, will enforce on the tech companies particularly any kind of, um, you know, uh, tech-based platform. So this is really broad. It can It's, it's your typical Twitter, um, Facebook, etc. but it can also cover things like dating platforms. Okay. So it's, it's, it covers basically any kind of interactive content aggregator of some some description. Um, so basically everything online is covered. Just assume you're covered um, unless there's like a private message between two people. That's that's out. But, um, so, so they've proposed this law where 
ACMA is going to regulate um, and enforce the various tech companies to have a misinformation, a code whereby they uh, work out how they're going to label and remove misinformation and disinformation. There's a few problems with this. The first is that um, uh, there are some exemptions to this law, so it's not it's not going to cover every single uh, piece of information that is put out online. It's very, uh, I would say, elitist in the okay. sense that it's excluding um, media organisations. So mainstream media organisations are excluded. Mm. Government mm -hmm. is excluded. Any uh, uh, educational institutions are excluded. There are some. I mean, that in particular is causing some issues because what if you're a professor? Clearly, you're not covered if you're just posting about your research, but if you're, you know, the University of you know, Sydney or something like that and you're posting, then you're covered. Right. So, the, I mean, it's a bit iffy, but I assume that's how it's going to play is that if you're an individual, even if you have a certain expertise, then you're still, you know, you're still liable to be hit with these. So it, it also means that if you have a problem with, you know, particular research that your university is putting out and you want to refute some findings, then technically you probably are going to be hit as well if you're a professor. Um, yeah, the other thing is that mainstream media organisations, so that would obviously exclude places like Quillette, um, places like Substack, you know, new media organisations uh, will not have the protections of the exemptions that they have given under this legislation. So sorry to be clear, mainstream media organisations organizations are protected yeah. and publications and, like Quillette and not. Yes. So it's coming down harder on independent on independent news. Yeah. new any kind of new uh, organization is is going to be hit harder. Like actually we need hit. to be hit any harder. Than I know, right? Yeah. yeah. So so that's one issue is that it's very unequal the way it's dealing with different institutions. So it's very much the case that they're preferencing legacy institutions, which, as we all know, can be fallible. They do get things wrong. We, they do very much get things wrong. And the fact that independent organisations don't aren't afforded these protections, particularly because they're the ones that often question a lot of the legacy, um, but a lot of the information that's put out by the legacy institutions. And often, you know, when that happens, they're eventually becomes reckoning and the truth will out, so to speak. So that is this, well, that's a really disturbing part of it. The other issue is that it's just simply unfeasible, I would say, that the idea that um, particularly organisations like Substack or DuckDuckGo that have a particular focus on free speech or privacy, the idea that they're just going to go along with this is, I think, laughable because Australia is such a small market. Um, more likely they will just, you know, wipe out Australian access and you'll have to, if you want to use these platforms, go through a VPN or something like this, which means that actually the technology is already there to circumvent. If people are going, know that they're going to be censored, if they know they're going to have their information diet monitored to such an extent, then at least for the savvy people, you know, that's just an incentive to go out and get a, v a VPN so that they can access media that... It's going to be denied to them. So so is there a chance that uh, this law won't be passed? Well, yeah, actually, it's, it's got an insane amount of submissions to it. Okay. Um, last I checked, they're still uploading the submissions that they've gotten. 
because they said they were going to upload them all, but because they're just so they're so voluminous, they haven't actually uploaded all. So given the amount of feedback that has been offered, and not just to ordinary Joe Blows or like I, I wrote as part of the Free Speech Union um, against this this legislation, but really other departments as well. So like the Human Rights Commission, which I just told you, mm-hmm. um, has gone after people for offensive speech. They have actually written in response to this draft legislation against it. Against it. Interesting. So it's not all coming from, you know, independent sources. It's also coming from a lot of legacy informa- information institutions as well. So if people are interested in the Free Speech Union uh, Australian branch or joining it, how, how can they do? You can go to freespeechunion.au and you can use the code Quillette and you can get 25% off for of your membership for that. Great. Yeah. Okay, well, I hope to see you at an All Minus One event in the future or something. I'm not sure if the Free Speech Union will do events well, as well. Yes, we're, we're planning on doing some events in Sydney. So, yeah, you're obviously welcome to come along to that as well. Great. Yeah. Okay, thanks for coming on Quillette, etc. Oh, welcome. Thank you.